Welcome everybody to Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. This is a podcast with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and my name is Aaron Claiborne. I'm the Outreach Specialist for the Engagements and Recovery Program with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. I am a certified recovery coach trainer, a certified naloxone trainer, and a certified peer specialist. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. Now joining me today is Tahira Malik. Tahira is the founder and chief operations officer at Samad's House, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So Tahira, welcome, 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 and please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, uh, including your professional background and current role. Thank you, Erin. Thank you guys for inviting me to share my story. Um, my name is Tahir Malik. I'm the founder and chief operations officer for Samad's House. Samad's House is a sober living home for women in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The stay is 120 days to rebuild, retrain, and reprogram that mind after addiction. So Samad's House and Sober Living would be the last step for women before they reintegrate into society as self-sufficient women. Nice, nice. That's good. Sounds like some good work you're doing down there. Thank you. Okay, so now I actually, I'd like to ask you some questions. This is based on your personal experience with drugs and alcohol. And the first question I'd like to ask is, how were you introduced to drugs and alcohol? Well, I was introduced, and I'm going to say more so drugs, Erin, because I wasn't really addicted to alcohol. That wasn't my drug of choice. My drug of choice were opioids. Um, I was introduced to the opioids first as a child because my mom had an addiction to them. And uh, as I got older, I, I vowed not to ever use drugs. And I had a daughter. And after I had my daughter, I had to have my gallbladder removed. Not even a week after getting my gallbladder removed, I was in a car accident and my doctor prescribed me the Percocets. You take one and then you take two and then you take three. And lo and behold, now you are addicted, which lead to other things. So I say, Erin, my, my addiction was, I learned about drugs as a child as a teenager at home because my mom was a housewife and my dad went to work and that's how I was introduced to the pills. I didn't start taking pills until I was in adulthood due to the car accident. Okay. Yeah. So, um, due to medical, uh, issues you were introduced to. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I can see how that could happen. Okay. So now I'd like to ask you, um, since you already explained to our listeners how you were introduced uh, to drugs, I'd like to ask you what led you to continue using them. What led me to continue using the pain pills was that I was a new mom and I was at home and I'd always see my parents being married and I was in a relationship with a man and we had a child, but he was gone all the time. So I was lonely. So once the doctor prescribed them, and I started taking them. I no longer cared where he was because the pain pill became my safety net. It became my companion. 
It took me away from those type of thoughts of like, why is he not home? Is he cheating? I didn't care anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I continued to use, you know, it took me away from what was really truly on my mind. You know, it was an escape mechanism for me. Yeah. Yeah. Temporary suppressing to current issues and problems and uh, emotions. Absolutely. I get that. Absolutely. All right. Now, I'd like to ask you now, um, how long were you addicted to, to drugs? Oh, Aaron, I was addicted. I, it started off with the Percocets, and then it started to the oxycodone, the oxycotton, which led to the methadone because the oxycodone and oxycotton wasn't lasting the times that the doctor said that they were supposed to last on the bottom. On the bottom. But the methadone, if you took methadone, that lasted all day, you know. I remember many nights I would take an oxycodone 40 milligram thinking that I would be able to sleep through the night and I was up within the next two and a half hours. But when I took the methadone, I was able to sleep through the night. It was more long um, acting. So I was addicted to those substances for 15 years. 15 years. Okay. All right. Wow. Okay. It was a long time. All right. Now I like to... Yeah. Initially, yeah, I yeah. hit it. You know, I, I'm just going to say, Aaron, initially I hit it because I was a professional working in the professional field of social work. And um, I tried to hide it to the best of my ability. But anyone who lives in addiction and then they come out, they realize they really weren't hiding it from anyone. You know, they thought they yeah. were. But people really did realize yeah. that there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I could definitely relate. <laughs> Definitely right. Relate. Everything that's in the darkness comes to the light. I know Absolutely. that. I know that to be a fact. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and um, get into a little bit about experience and stigma. So now I would like to ask you, before you began your recovery journey, what type of stigma did you experience personally and how did it impact you? So for me personally, when I think of the stigma, like I said, um, Aaron, initially... I thought I was hiding it from my coworkers and I wasn't. So I was let go, of course. But the stigma of, for me, becoming addicted to the methadone and then I also became addicted to the Xanax, the benzos. I would mm-hmm. I would go to the emergency room probably every two days saying I'm having an anxiety attack <laughs> just because I love the benzos and I had to go get them. <laughs> And I, the stigma was the nurses knew when I came, oh, just write her a prescription and get her out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, was, I'm kind of like, oh, my God, my blood pressure, my heart. I, and, yeah. You know, <laughs> the stigma of she is acting. She mm-hmm. is really not hurt. She is going, we don't need her just to take up a room because we have, we have real patients to tend to. <laughs> Yeah. So the stigma of knowing that I was just an addict trying to get a drug, right? <laughs> and at the time, yeah. when you're yeah. living in addiction, you really, Aaron, you don't even care when you're living addiction as long as you get what you want, right? As long as you get what you want, you don't care the stigma. It, it, it really affects you more so when you come out. And I say that for me right. because I dealt with so much disrespect and addiction that when I was blessed to come out, and coming to recovery, I don't tolerate anyone disrespecting me because it was so severe when I lived in addiction. That's right. Yeah, no doubt. And that's the thing about stigma. You know, <clears throat> um, it, there's a lot of disrespectful things that are said. And it 
you know, I like to just elaborate a little bit on what you said. Yeah. During, during the time, during personally my addiction, I didn't care. I don't, I don't care what you say to me, but afterwards there's an effect, uh, a long lasting effect, a stigma, stigma that we really get to see after we get into recovery, after the addiction has subsided or been, um, you know, kind of wrangled in, you know, um, it's still damaging years later. So can I piggyback off that, Aaron? Oh, please let me piggyback off that. Because what happens is that after you come out of recovery, Aaron, the one thing that I've learned, you have to fix the mess that you created in addiction. Mm-hmm. It's so you if if you're blessed to come out, it has taken me near five years to correct all of my mistakes that I made in addiction, meaning monetary wise, meaning mending relationships, meaning actually showing people that I am a trustworthy person, you know, and I am no longer that person I was in addiction. The most meaningful thing happened to me during Juneteenth era. I've always had a professional mentor from 17 years old all the way through my professional career in social work, right? And Mm -hmm. I fell into addiction and she saw me fall into addiction. And she pulled me to the side in the middle of my addiction and counseled me and said, hey, you got to come out of this. This is not chill. What is wrong, right? Yeah. And I, it took years because I sunk a lot lower. But at Juneteenth this year, she was there. And I I went up to her and I said, I needed to see you. I needed you to see the transformation in me. Because she mattered to me. And I hated that she probably had a stigma in her head of me being addicted to drugs. And for me, it was complete for her to see me whole again, for her to see me. Not only have I come out of that darkness, I'm trying to do something to bring light to all of the darkness that I brought. You know, I'm trying to work with women who sincerely want to, who want that help. Not only it, not only that, but I am also a certified Nalongsong trainer. We we go out into the community. We train the community and let them know how to properly use Nalongsong and then also the fentanyl testing strips because for me it's paramount that people know the dangers of drugs and it's paramount for us to try to save lives. You know, I sure. say to a lot of people in the community, hey, <laughs> I, I am you. I was you. I was you. So let's let's do this. You can you can do this. Let's do this because I was you. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I wish I could have experienced that moment with you when you went to your mentor. And uh, I like the, the phrase you used to see that you were whole again. That's beautiful. That and I cried. Cool. I turned around and I just cried because. That I mean, was I don't a, think I, you can do nothing but, yeah. You can't it was help a but day that I dreamed to be able to do. It was a day I really had dreamed about that I wanted her. It meant everything. Like, I, I you know, I tell my parents, hey, I told everybody. Because I I got addicted in my late 20s 
and all the way through my 30s. And I told everybody, by 40, I'm going to have everything back together. And by the grace of God, by the time I hit 40, I had I was already in the process of rebuilding my life and fixing all of the things that I had broken. Great. Nice. Nice. Real nice. All right. Good stuff right there. So I, now I'd like to speak with you uh, on the community impact of AODA, alcohol, and other drug addictions. So now living in a community or an environment where drugs and alcohol were readily available, uh, what was peer pressure like for you to get involved with using drugs? Did you experience any kind of peer pressure? Yeah, I'm going to just say this, and I, I, I totally believe in being totally transparent, just because when I'm being transparent, maybe this can help heal someone else or bring someone else into recovery. Um, like I said, my parents have been married, and like I said, um, from childhood, my mom was addicted to the prescription pain pills, and I had two older brothers who left Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the five rest of us stayed here, and unfortunately, me being the oldest and being an addiction, the other four fell into addiction as well. And so when we talk about communities and we're talking about peer pressure, I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about us sitting down doing drugs together. I'm talking about saying, hey, you got to peel because I'm sick. I'm talking about all of us doing this. So the peer pressure, yeah, it's not even peer pressure. It's everyone just trying to survive, Right. Because now we all fell into addiction together. Now we all need to survive because being addicted to opioids, it's, it's such a physical sickness. You know, when, yeah. when we're talking about cocaine, you know, we're talking about more psychological addiction. But when we're talking about opioids, you know, you physically get sick, you throw up, your back hurts. You know, all of those nerve receptors and those dopamine nerve receptors are gone. You know, they were replaced mm -hmm. by the receptors of, of that opioid. And so we're talking about being sick and being up all night and throwing up and shaking and shivering. You know, that's just the reality of what withdrawal looks like coming off an opioid. And hoping that someone in your house has that for you. So when I say peer pressure or think of peer pressure in that question, Erin, it wasn't even peer pressure at this point because now it's surviving. We're surviving and we're trying to survive together. And so for me, I had to go sit down and sit away because I was naughty. So for me, I knew that <laughs> when I came home, I couldn't go back into that environment. You know, I, I, I was able to. And I tell this story to everyone. I, I asked my mom, Ma, I'm ready to get out. How do I get out? And she just looked at me and we just prayed to God. I went to my daddy and I said, Daddy, I'm tired. How do I get out? And he just looked at me. But then I took it to God. I took it to God. Mm -hmm. I sat one day and fell to my knees outside on the ground. And I said, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise you, I'm not going to go back. You just get me out. I promise you I won't go back. And Aaron, I tell you something. I have ran from the police for five years. <laughs> and I tell you, I was on the run. But I tell you what, me running and me getting caught, it was the best, it was the blessing that I needed from God. And he got me out. And I kept my word. I didn't go back. Because when he got me out, Aaron, 
every one of my siblings under me came out as well. When he got me out, Aaron, my mama came out. When he got me out, Aaron, we as a family are doing our part in the community to bring others out. And that's my message. You can come out from the darkness if you want. There are, there are resources and help. There are people who are doing it from the ground up with their own finances because we believe in you. We believe in you and we believe in recovery. That's right. It happens. It can happen. Definitely. It can happen. Real powerful stuff right there. Thank you. Thank you. So now I'd like to ask you uh, to describe for our audience what the availability of illicit street drugs looks like in your community. Oh my what does God. that look like? Yeah. It looks like everyday hustling. It's it, mm-hmm. it's it let me tell you something, Aaron. Our sober house, Samad's house, is in the heart of the community. We are in the heart of the African American community. And my women, when they go sit on a porch or out back on the patio, it may be somebody on the other side smoking some weed. Right? It may be somebody, it may be somebody pull up and just got served. And I'm just gonna be transparent. That's what they do, right? They just yeah. got served. They see it. So I say that to say that if you want your recovery, it doesn't matter where it's at. If you serious about it, none of that should bother you. Because guess right. what? I ain't going back. I'm not going back. I know what that outcome is. I remember. I remember what it felt like to do that and then to fall all the way down. I remember what it looks like to lose my home, my job, my kids. I remember what that looked like. And those are the foundations that I'm going to keep at the forefront of my mind to keep me solid and away from drugs. Because I know what hell looks like. I'm trying to see what heaven looks like. I want to see what heaven looks like. I know what hell looks like. Mm -hmm. Don't want to see it again. (laughs) That's a place I never want to go back to. I agree. Totally. And that's why we have to reach out our hands and pull people up. That's why we have to, as loud and as malicious as we were in addiction, is as loud as we have to be in recovery. Oh, my God. That's right. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Now I would like to ask you, um, just uh, piggybacking off the previous question. Um, now, now, how did that impact your substance use and recovery? That availability of illicit that, street drugs. How did that impact your substance use, and how did it impact your recovery? The availability. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the drugs that I was on, Erin, it wasn't readily available. <laughs> When you're talking about those oxycodones and oxycodones, they're not available. You have to know somebody that knows somebody, right? Somebody, right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. True. Very true. You have to know somebody. Know somebody. They're not gonna be just that. You know what? The unfortunate thing is, they probably are standing on the corner today with it. And today, yeah. That's a, New day. that's a whole different issue, right? That's a whole different issue because we, as a society, and we, as a community, and people, as entertainers, we all should hold ourselves responsible 
responsible for what we putting out in this music and, and programming that we giving these kids to make them think that it's okay to take a Percocet when they don't even, they don't know or telling them what the detriment of taking that opioid truly is. Mm-hmm. You, you know, when I was growing up, the songs talked about, hey, smoke some marijuana or drink some alcohol. But the songs today are talking about take a Percocet, take a Xanax. You are telling these kids to go take some heroin. Are you kidding me? This is what you put in your music. You this, this is so that that addiction is totally different than the other addiction. You are physically telling these kids to take a pill that is going to alter their whole life. And then we're looking at society and what's going on, the reckless driving, the the um the the murder rates, because you have a bunch of individuals out here who are addicted to something that you program through this music and TV. And how do we cure that? That's right. There's programming, like many years of programming that is pounded into these kids' heads nowadays. And they don't, their minds aren't developed yet. So when they start taking these substances, they don't have time for complete development of the brain. And by the time they're an adult, you know, if they don't find recovery, it's a, it's a horrible thing. You know, it's a terrible thing to see. So my question to you, Aaron, is how do we deprogram our society and our kids from what they have been programmed to do? That's a good question. That's a great question. I don't have any answers, but the only answer I do have is cut off the head and the body will fall. That's all I can say. But this is my interview. I'm interviewing you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get back to it. Well, then we'll say that for another day. <laughs> uh, no doubt. Definitely. I'm looking forward to that day, too. All right. So now I'd like to ask you, what do you think perpetuates the cycle uh, of the distribution or the, or the sale of illicit street drugs in your community? Why is this continuing to happen? It's continuing to happen. Number one is because we're looking at the poverty rate. We're looking at the educational rate. We're looking at unemployment rates. And then we're also, again, looking at what's being programmed and what's being solicited out in our communities. That's what's perpetuating the illicit sales of drugs. That's right. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. Okay. So now I'd like to ask you, um, why do you think that it continues to be an issue in communities of color? Yeah, I think you kind of just touched on it, but I, I like I like to ask you to touch on it just a tad bit more. You can get a little deeper if you choose to. Well, specifically Aaron, to these communities of color. Well, Aaron, the communities of color is because we're disproportionately have unemployment rates, education, poverty. That's why the people in our communities we're trying to run away from what our reality is the opportunities that's lacking. We're trying to run away from that. And our escape is drugs. They've been, they're putting them out in our, in our communities and our people are taking them because they're trying to escape what the reality of their life is. It's that feeling of hopelessness. It's that feeling of helplessness. That's why it's so high in our communities. That's right. That's a generational trauma. You're speaking to real deep. I'm liking it. Real deep stuff. I'm loving what I'm hearing. So I'm going to switch gears again. um, And I'm going to ask you some questions about reflecting on challenges uh, to recovery in African-American communities. So 
the first question I'd like to ask you is, now when we're circling back to your personal journey and recovery, what have you learned that inspires you to continue maintaining your recovery? So circling back to my recovery, um, yeah, your mm-hmm. I didn't know, honest to God, Aaron, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't know where to go. <laughs> when I was deep in addiction, like I said, I went to my parents. I didn't know where to go, Aaron. I didn't, nobody could tell me how to come out. Maybe I wasn't asking the right people. Maybe I wasn't in the right areas. But no one could tell me. And when I went and sat down in in, um, the House of Correction for 13 months, the women and I, we all hadn't been... We hadn't been sober in some 10 years, some 15 years like myself. And this was our first opportunity once we got through the aches and pains to rebuild who we were before addiction. But now we're going to refine it. You know, now it's time to chisel all of that off and become that diamond, you know. And so we were doing that. And so because I had to sit for a while the women, some of the women came back a week later after doing six months. And I'm looking like, I'm just trying to go home and you coming back. Mm. And, <laughs> and they said, oh, well, I didn't have anywhere to go. I went back to that same environment. I'm just listening and talking to people because this is what I love to do. I said, you know what? Let's, let's create a safe space. And I know right now I'm focusing on women and I'm focusing on women because I'm a woman. I'm a woman with children and I'm a woman who had to do it. I'm a woman who lived in addiction with children. And so for me, it's about empowering women to know that, hey, let's get it together. There's people here to hold your hand to make sure that you're self-sufficient. And let's get our kids back. Let's restore our families. Let's go back into society and make a difference only on a positive level. Let's leave all that darkness in the past. I don't know if I answered your question, Aaron. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know if I answered that question. You answered the question. And if uh, you feel like you didn't, the things you did say were very impactful. So (laughs) it was good information no matter how you, you, you take it. Thank you. Okay. All right. So. Um, now I'd like to ask you this question. So now, after finding recovery and reflecting on your previous substance use, what did you learn about yourself? That I'm that I'm a lot stronger than I realized. Because when you're trying to come out of addiction, you feel helpless. You feel like, oh, God, just take me. This is unbearable. And then you start moving through it and then you start learning through God, through God. You start learning your strength. Then you start learning. For me, it taught me what my mission in life, what the purpose of life that God has put on my life. I say that, Erin, because I was blessed to achieve a lot of um, accomplishments young. You know, I graduated college. And at the time, my goal was to become a director of a youth center because I've worked for the Boys and Girls Club since I was a teenager. And I was able to become a a director of a youth center by 29, you know. But as you work in a field a good 15 years and you're young, 
You start questioning, God, at least I did. God, is this my life? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this my purpose? This can't be my purpose because I'm not feeling fulfilled. I love kids, but I've done this for so long that this is not fulfilling to me. What is my purpose, right? And then I fall into addiction. You fall into addiction, Aaron, and you be like, my life is over. This is it. (laughs) There's no more I can do. This is it. I'm in addiction, right? There's no way for me to get out. I just got to figure out how to survive, right? Right. You're like, I just got to survive. I just got to get out this pain just for today. I just want to get out this pain even for just an hour, right? That pain becomes so unbearable. You just want to get out of it just for even an hour. Mm -hmm. And you compromise your integrity. You compromise your values just to get out that pain, right? You compromise all that just to get out that pain just for that moment. You can't see past any of that. You can't. This is it. Right. And and then God speaks. And then God show you, you have no control. I control all things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you give up. He's, a, he's like, when you get tired, God, like, when you get tired, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show right. you I yeah. am God. I am God. Yeah. Right? And he sat me down. And he brought me out, but I had to fight to get out, right? Because that yeah. sickness, oh my God, only a person who's been in addiction to, to opioids can understand. Then that sickness hit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he continues, God continue to work on you. He continue to refine you. He continue to refine you. And through that refinement, he starts showing you what your purpose in life is. Little by little, what he needs you to do. And he showed me little by little what he need me to do, piece by piece. I had to keep working. I'm teaching school. I work at a I worked at a factory for 10 years to regain my skills of working again to get those habits back in, right? Then mm-hmm. I go back to teaching, right? And as I'm teaching, God is showing me it's time to start building. It's time to start building Samad's house now. You're ready now. And so now we start building. And so now through that that transformation, you know, you can open your doors now. We open our doors and by the grace of God, we have women in here that who want healing and that we're able to work with and utilize the curriculum that God has put on our heart. See, we using the skills of what God gave us and the skills that we have to do to rebuild who we are. You know, we just showing women what we did. But we always keep God first because we don't know. We give them the skills that we got. We let them know, hey, let's do this together. I'm here. I'm here. Let's do this together. And through that refinement, God says, hey, you're doing the women. You're living in your purpose. But it's still people out here dying. You got to get the message out that they're lacing these drugs. These people are dying. These people are dying in your community. These are your people. You got to let them know they got to stop. You got to let them know they can come out. They can come out. They can come out. You got to show them the hope. You have to show them the hope and the faith and the grace and the mercy of God because you are them. And that's how somebody tells for them, that's who I am. That's how I know what my purpose in life is. But it, it took me, I had to go through hell. I had to go through hell to get 
to where I'm at to get to heaven. I had to go through hell to get to heaven. So now it's my job to show others that, hey, I guess what? We can do this. And I'm not going to sugarcoat nothing for you. We're going to do this. But you, you ain't going to play with me about it. <laughs> you ain't going to play with me about it. We're going to keep it 100, right? Yeah, we, you ain't going to play with me. Like the kids say, you ain't going to play in my face now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So now I, w- I would like to ask you, um, what changes happened in your life after finding recovery? Um, I'm just going to go back to what I stated earlier. I came out, the biggest blessing, I came out, my sisters came out, my brothers came out. We all came out. We were all there doing it together. And the biggest blessing of it all was to see my mama sober. I told my mama because she was still in addiction when we opened to my house door. She had an episode and I said to her, Mama, all of this will be null and void if I can't save the one person who means the most to me in life. Mm. Everything I'm doing is because I want to save you. You are if I can't save my mama, then what am I doing? And she heard me. And she heard me. Mm. Wow. Nice. Very nice. Okay, so now now I would like to ask you. What advice would you give a person in the African-American community who is battling addiction? What advice would you that give? It, that if you're ready for help, we here. We're going to grab hold of you. And we ain't going to let you go. If you want help, we here. And we listening. And we want to help you. And we're not judging you. Hope is possible. God, God is hope and God is love. And we are here. And there's help. Just grab hold. Grab hold of my hand. Grab hold of the hands of the people in your community. Because there are resources. There is help. And there's people who care. Yeah. There's people who care. Who genuinely cares. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the that's what our listeners need to hear, man. That um don't let that stigma get in the way. There there are people out here to help. Uh ready to lend a helping hand, you know. So that's <laughs> That's good Put stuff. That pride and that ego to the side. Push it away. Put that pride and that ego to the side. And we ain't got no place for no egos. We ain't got no place for no pride. We ain't got no place for that. We put that pride and that ego to the side. And we all gonna do this on the same level. We're gonna mm-hmm. hold your hand and we're gonna get you through. We all on the same level. That's good. Good stuff. All right. So now I would like to ask you, um, kind of advice would you have someone have for someone in the african-american community who is seeking recovery i know you just kind of said it but what other advice could you give a person uh in the communities of color in our communities uh who are seeking recovery how can they go about getting finding recovery i know that a lot of people say start at 211 start at 211 ask for help I, the thing I would tell someone in recovery is, and this is the biggest thing that I'm facing today, Erin, is that when people find recovery and they go into detox and then they go into residential, then they come into sober living. But trying to get to residential, sometimes there's a waiting list. So now I didn't clean myself up and I made it in my mind that I'm ready, but there's nowhere to go. Now you're telling me to go back home into the same environment for two more weeks or two more months, into the same environment 
that I just detoxed from. Are you kidding me? Right. What are we doing here? What yeah, are we it's doing a here? Challenging. A little challenging. Yeah, what are we doing right. here? What are we doing here? I would tell someone living in recovery who's seeking recovery to if you're strong and you're saying that this is what you want, stay strong. Stay strong in your recovery. You can do it. Stay away from those triggers. You have to stay away from those triggers. I wish we could house everyone. I wish we could, you know, but that's, that's one of the biggest barriers that I'm looking at today, Erin, is that we have to have an extension. Once someone has made up their mind and they sincere and they go to resident detox and they go to residential, then they come to sober living. Now they're looking like I'm almost ready, <laughs> but I'm not ready. I'm still what am I going to do, right? What am I going to do? So really trying to find and make sure that our people are ready and holding their hands. Like I tell my women, after you graduate my program, you still you still come. We have a group here. We a family. We done did these days together and these months together. I don't want you going out there and feeling like now you alone because you're not alone. I'm not going to let you yeah. be alone. You didn't came this far. You can do it. That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. So now I'd like to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't discussed today? You have any other thoughts, comments? No, no, Aaron, I don't have any other thoughts. I really appreciate, appreciate this opportunity to speak. And like I said, Aaron, let's just continue to recover loudly because that makes a difference. We have to bring awareness. And we have to recover loudly. And we have to show people recovery is possible. And guess what? It's easier than being in addiction. Because you ain't got to figure out where you're going to get that money from to go get what you need for the next hour. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Living in recovery is easier than addiction. Just come out. Yeah, you ain't got to worry about the, the police. You don't have to worry about having... You know, court cases. You don't have to worry about jail. You know, th- those are the you things. Ain't you ain't got to worry about, about you like. short somebody and they looking for you. Let's keep it real. <laughs> yeah. 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 You want to remain walking on this planet. All right, Tahira. Hey, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, you have some wonderful and beautiful things to say to our listeners. Uh, very impactful words. Very powerful things you said. And uh, that, that, that empathy and, and that encouragement that you expressed is is well needed um in the in the in the world of substance use disorder and and the world of recovery uh and i really appreciate you being here i had a great time listening to you and and getting some of your knowledge i appreciate it thank you Aaron. i appreciate being here thank you for having me it was a great conversation thank you i appreciate you so much all right uh thank you uh, our listeners for joining us on this episode of Sober. That is uh, Tahira Malik today from Samai's house sharing her experience with substance use disorder and recovery stigma. Uh, and I am Aaron Claiborne, outreach specialist for Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Thank you all for joining and have a wonderful day. <laughs>